Oh my God, David, look at that podcast room you are in. That foam padding. <laughs> Welcome to Season 3, Episode 9 of Acquired, the show about technology acquisitions and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. Today we are back with the Acquired version of Terminator 2, the second part of our (laughs) Netflix episode. (laughs) You like that, David? (laughs) It's just for you. Oh, man. That's great. That's great. (laughs) Love it. Listeners, now, if you remember, the last episode we did covered the DVD saga of Netflix and where we left our heroes in 2009, shortly before the epic launch of Quickster. So today we're going to dive in on the era of streaming and later original content. So David, I wanted to have a, a fun fact to start us off on, on Netflix. So as you remember, they were once a plucky startup mailing DVDs to customers and, and a, you know, a remnant of the pre.com bubble starting in 97. Um, and they were doing this you know, even before most people had DVD players. They, they were waiting for the DVD wave to crest. This company now accounts for 15% of all internet traffic. I know. That's in my show notes. <laughs> uh, <it's, laughs> well, sorry to blow your, your cover early, but you know, streaming movies and TV as a category actually now makes up 58% of downstream internet traffic, and no single service accounts for more of that, that bandwidth than, uh, than Netflix does. And at peak times, it can even account for 40% of the U.S.'s concurrent internet traffic. So you could imagine maybe uh, like 8 p.m. Eastern or something like that. Absolutely incredible. <laughs> Yeah, and this is with some of the best compression and optimization technology that like humans as a species have figured out how to do. The last episode was about a company fighting to get its first 500,000 customers, and this episode is very much about sort of global domination. All right, listeners, we announced on the last episode that we had formally launched the Acquired Limited Partner Program, and we've been just totally floored by how many of you have have joined our LP community and are listening to the bonus show and are sending us really great questions for um, um, doing Q&A on the show. David, last week's episode was like very fun, so I'm pumped I got to meet Dan, and thanks for bringing him on. Yeah, it was super fun. We had Dan Hill, uh, who, in addition to being the CEO of Wave's first portfolio company, Alma, co-founder and CEO, he was Airbnb's head of growth for a long time and had just great stories about growing Airbnb from, you know, Series B days to $30 billion plus and just so much to learn from him. Um, So really fun to have him on the LP show. Anyway, listeners, if you want to hear Dan talk about why Airbnb was successful sort of in the space and, and how they chose their metrics and a bunch of other great stuff, you can click the link in the show notes to support the show for $5 a month or go to Kimberlite.fm slash acquired. That's K-I-M-B-E-R-L-I-T-E dot F-M slash acquired. I feel like we really need a jingle for that. Do do do. We could just play that every time. Yeah, that's the, yeah. Acquired needs better jingles. Period. That might be do, one of my yeah. holiday uh, holiday projects. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Back to the show. <laughs> For our sponsor this episode, we have Zoom Info. Zoom Info is an awesome business and product story that is totally in the acquired vein. Totally. This is an amazing under the radar entrepreneurial story. Henry Shuck, the CEO of Zoom Info, actually founded a predecessor company back in 2007 called Discover Org from his law school apartment. They were dedicated to helping sales professionals find the right contacts at the right accounts so they could stop digging for prospects and focus on closing deals. And then 
2019, Discover.org actually acquired ZoomInfo, another big player in the business data space. Yes, they kept the ZoomInfo name, and the combined company has grown way beyond just being a contact data solution. They've actually created this full-stack B2B revenue growth platform on top of it. It is super cool. ZoomInfo actually went public in 2020. They were the first real tech IPO after COVID hit, and they have continued to expand their product suite, and they've just done phenomenally well. It starts with the best business data in the world, whether that's company, contact, or intent data, and this data fuels ZoomInfo's actionable insights, engagement platform, automated workflow capabilities, and so much more. It is the single best way for B2B professionals to find their next customer or close their next deal, streamline their operations, and build the best team possible. And best of all, it is all in one place so your revenue teams can collaborate seamlessly and close deals faster. So if you're in B2B and you're wondering how can we drive more revenue and who's not, how can we find, acquire, and grow accounts that are looking for our solution right now? How do we make our sales and marketing teams as productive as possible? How do we automate our go-to-market motions to both supercharge our growth and save money? ZoomInfo is simply amazing. They now handle the full revenue pipeline from marketing to sales, even ops, all based on the number one ranked business data. Yes, customers include enterprises like Snowflake, Workday, PayPal, Dropbox, Unilever, and thousands of startup and growth companies, 30,000 customers and counting. And here's something really cool. ZoomInfo is making their go-to-market playbook available for anyone to try for free. You want to find out how you can use intent data to target key prospects or how to revive a stalled deal by expanding your buying committee outreach. Head on over to acquire.fm slash zoominfo to see the zoominfo plays and just tell them that Ben and David at Acquired sent you. Yes, definitely. And our huge thank you to zoominfo. Now, onto the show. On to the show, indeed. David, I, I texted you before this. We have a little bit of follow-up from uh, from the last episode. We have some awesome listeners that wrote us in uh, about Netflix Part 1. And since this is a two-parter, we do get to um, actually go back and uh, and make a few corrections. The first one is actually on my carve-out from last week, where I mentioned that The Good Place uh, was a Netflix show. That is a classic millennial mistake. It is completely not a Netflix show. It's an NBC show that just got syndicated on Netflix. But my cord cutting had blinded me from that. And Netflix originals have just gotten so good and plentiful that I just assumed that I was watching a Netflix show. Uh, so oh, man. Uh, what that mistake, foreshadowing for part two. <laughs> I know. The other one we, uh, is that we discussed that Blockbuster had an incredible business model where they only had to pay rack rate for DVDs. Uh, and then they could rent them as many times as they would like. Thanks to, uh, on Twitter, Jim underscore Brown, uh, we have a correction. It's difficult actually to track down the exact number. It's sort of buried in some academic papers. And I think it came out in some uh, court case filings that I gave up on trying to actually find it out. But it's it's somewhere between 50 and and $100 that they actually had to pay for uh, every DVD rather than just getting to sort of buy them at, at store price in sort of a special deal that, that they had orchestrated so that they could generate the sort of high rental revenues that they they got from each one of those DVDs. So good to know there. And thank you to Jim for for correcting us. And the third one is we had an anonymous listener send us some amazing facts about Redbox uh, after we briefly touched on it in the last episode. So Redbox, um, as you know, from the last episode was actually originally a project at Netflix that uh, an executive quit to go and, uh, and, and work on full time. So Outerwall, which was Redbox's once parent company, 
uh, was acquired for over a billion dollars in 2016 by the private equity firm Apollo Global Management. And uh, Redbox is now a standalone company inside of Apollo. Turns out it's wildly profitable. They're, they're actually working on on starting a streaming service of their own, uh, standing up a, a second attempt of that. But looking at their core business, like it's not hard to figure out why they're wildly profitable. It turns out running a, a retail footprint of six feet by six feet um, that rarely requires human intervention can be wildly profitable. No surprise there. They have like the, you know, if you think about sort of like the dollars per square foot per month at, at retail establishments like one one way people always focus on improving the numerator there but you could also lower the denominator <laughs> yeah they've sort of gamed the system on that metric but he, here's another crazy thing about redbox right now so in disney's attempt to build their own relationship with customers through the uh in my opinion, very dumbly named Disney Plus, they do not have a distribution agreement with Redbox. So what does Redbox do to get the Disney titles on their their machines? Well, we heard a great story. It is official company policy to send employees store to store when new Disney movies come out to buy retail copies of the DVDs, I guess, Blu-rays, and bring them back to stock the machines. This is this is actually how Redbox acquires Disney movies to put onto their their platform. Wow. Which I got to imagine are some of the most popular titles on, on Redbox machines. I just think in general, I think we, we sold the company short last episode. Um, they deserve some of the credit also for destroying Blockbuster because while Netflix was hard at work hammering them on the online front, Redbox was also doing for $1 what they used to do for $3 and in many ways easier because they sort of had more endpoints at more stores. Blockbuster's main business was sort of under under attack there as well. So lots of kudos to, to Redbox for um, being a major player in this industry. Indeed. Indeed. All right. So, David, can you, you take us in to, what, year 2007? Rewind a little bit and, <laughs> and start with uh, with streaming? Or are you going to like find some way to go to like the <laughs> early 30s? <laughs> <laughs> Not that far back this time. But uh, we will pick up the story in part two. As listeners remember, in part one, we covered the story of Quickster. I mean, Netflix, <laughs> from founding to 2009. Once again, also in part two, want to shout out the really excellent book, uh, Netflixed by Gina Keating, um, which provides a lot of the history and facts. And really for anyone who's more deeply interested in this company um, and this history, uh, can't recommend enough that you go read it. So we ended last time in 2009. Netflix, not yet Quickster, had basically you know snatched victory from the the jaws of blockbuster do you keep calling it quickster because like their whole business basically was quickster yes this was quickster. Okay, yeah, yeah, everything yeah. we discussed in the last episode was quickster <laughs> they just reached 10 million subscribers it's 2009 there the recession uh has beset the u.s and and the world recently and and netflix is one of the few companies that is thriving during the recession they're basically on top of the world but the waves are shifting Streaming is coming, and like any good, you know, sea captains uh, at sea, Reed Hastings and the Netflix management team, uh, they see this and they know that they're going to have to adapt and they're going to have to embrace this uh, this new tidal wave of of streaming that that they see coming. So to rewind a little bit, how did streaming kind of come about? So uh, really, I mean, I think you can point to this was our first episode. It was our first acquired episode, right? Disney Pixar. Yeah, first or the second. I can't remember Instagram or, or Pixar was one of our it was, first. Yeah, those were one and two. But anyway, Disney in 2006 had acquired Pixar. And that, of course, brought Steve Jobs, uh, became the largest single shareholder in Disney. And, and Steve Jobs joined the Disney board. 
And after that happened in the couple years following, Disney made a made a pretty unprecedented move. They brought all of their video content to the iTunes store. And so for the first time, all of a sudden, I remember doing this in college and right after, you could buy digital copies of Disney movies and ABC TV shows. I remember doing this with Lost and you could buy a whole season at a time. Now this was not streaming. This was downloading. You would buy it on iTunes, download the entire file to your computer. Um, in the beginning, there wasn't even a video iPod. I like the play. disdain that you say for computer. <laughs> like you're, as some like archaic device. It is. It is. <laughs> <laughs> I say as I'm talking into one, but I'm, I'm, rapidly trying to move everything to ipad but and so that really kind of started to open the industry's eyes this was the first like this was real content mainstream content that that now could be available digitally the other thing that happened right around this time is is u.s broadband penetration finally passed you know 50 percent, and then kept growing and and became really mm-hmm. ubiquitous you know this this whole business whether downloads or or streaming would have been impossible in the in the dial-up days um but broadband finally enables it so netflix of course and and reed hastings and the management team they, they see all this happening and they know they need to do something so in 2007 they make a pretty key hire onto the team they hire a man named anthony wood now anthony had been the founder of a successful dvr company um so you know those like set top boxes that were like like tivos so he had founded a competitor to tivo called replay tv that had been successful and so they hire him to come and be a vp at netflix and to work on what they're calling the netflix box and the idea is that this would be a set top box made by netflix that people would would buy and put in their homes next to their dvd players and initially the vision was it would have a hard drive in it and just like when you would download a Disney movie uh, via iTunes onto your computer, you would download a, a movie from Netflix onto this box and it would play it off the hard drive hooked up to your TV. I think I glazed over that in the research, like but that the before streaming, it really was like it was it was a, basically a NAS, like a, a network store, you know. I just keep a bunch of stuff at, at home. Well, it was it, it was a replay TV. It was a DVR. That's what it was. Uh, it was a hard drive. Um they realized though that that actually with broadband like you know you have to wait to download the movie when you're um in in this old paradigm that that actually just streaming they had the technology to do that and and that would be better so they pivot the project into that the the box is is coming along but Reed and the management team they start to get worried though uh this is late 2007 they they worry that if they release their own box they see that there's fights coming in this new paradigm they're gonna have to fight with the cable companies they're gonna have to fight with the content companies and they realize that if they release their own box they're also gonna have to fight with the consumer electronics manufacturers and reads like one of his main jobs at this point is sort of going door to door with xbox and with i think playstation and like really lining up these partnerships saying hey we think streaming is going to be a thing we're working on a way to get that delivered through the browser on computers but we know that a lot of people are going to be reticent to you know when we do this watch on computers so they, they probably want to do it on tvs you guys are plugged into tvs and and he's re- realizing like boy these negotiations are are not going to go well uh if, if i have my like, competitive device to you guys 
what does he do? We've seen this before. He tells Anthony, yeah, we're going to have to cancel the project just like they did with Redbox. And Anthony says, oh, oh, okay, well, you know, we've basically built this thing. How about we do something a little bit different? I think they're two weeks from shipping. From people who, who know sort of how this process works, they're in the third phase. So it's DVT, design and validation testing or verification testing. Like the whole team has been over in China, like manufacturing these things. They've did, done several revs. They're coming off the line. They, I think they have a hundred or 50 units made that are done and perfect and they're taking those on the roadshow to like show sort of demos retailers to potential partners yeah yep. uh, of, of like you know they're this thing's baked it's baked yep and and in a classic you know netflix management team reed hastings move it's you know nope we're changing our mind as we will see but wood wood convinces them okay rather than killing the whole project how about we spin this out as a separate company, we've already built this device. It will behoove you, Netflix, to have this device out there to be the initial, you know, device streaming partner for this Netflix streaming service. You know, we can have a win-win here and I get to run, you know, my own company here. Well, they talk it over. They decide, okay, they spin the company out and they name it Roku. <laughs> uh, bum, and Roku, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. Roku actually um, was a name. So Wood had had a, essentially a shell company after the after selling Replay TV and uh, or moving on from Replay TV. It started a company called called Roku, which uh, I believe in Japanese means six is the number six. And uh, it was that this was his sixth company that he had started. Yep. Something like that. Yeah, um, exactly that. And uh, and so he, he essentially restarts this company, leaves Netflix and takes this box that they've built within Netflix. Netflix and rebrands it as Roku and launches it in early 2008. And it is, um, you know, it goes on to great success and is now its own public company. Uh, IPO'd earlier this year. But they are the first device streaming partner for this Netflix streaming service. And just like Netflix wanted, following this, this is sort of the proof of concept. They sign up Microsoft and Xbox as a device partner. Streaming comes that summer to Xbox 360, um, Netflix streaming. And then they start you know, going to PlayStation, they go to all these connected devices, knocking them down one by one. Can we just pause and reflect for a moment? What an unbelievably gutsy management decision that is. Like you have this whole like arm of your company for, for listeners who are interested, we'll put a link in the show notes. The team like a month before canning it, or maybe a couple weeks before canning it did an all hands where uh, a group of employees did a parody video of the Dharma initiative from lost, which was huge at the time (laughs) of, of the sort of like secret project to build i can't remember what they called what the sort of secret project name was Um, all i remember about lost is that it was it's like such a period piece now (laughs) oh the code name was griffin so it was it was like the dharma initiative logo with griffin in the middle but this video is amazing because it, it was shown at the all hands it's got everyone from you know people who worked on it to the manufacturing team in china to reed hastings who like as part of this video and they're showing it to everyone at the all hands as like a hype video for get excited about this like new strategic direction the company is going to take we're doing hardware baby like we're doing our own video codex like we're going from silicon all the way up to the cloud and we're going to own the whole thing and then just like on a dime boom it's its own like it's its own company that goes on to be wildly successful i mean it's really amazing like uh, i don't know if this says more about me and me living under a rock or just that like this history of netflix is not told that both Redbox and roku come out of netflix like it's, it's incredible. crazy they've had more spinoffs than they have their own acquisitions <laughs> i think they've only ever acquired one company 
I know what their first was. I don't know if there were other ones after that. And their, their first was quite recent. But the Roku thing, what, just one more note on this. I tried to do a bunch of research to figure out when they spun it out, what did the ownership structure look like? You're totally not living under a rock because I looked through the entire Roku S1 and a couple times it mentions Netflix as... Obviously, they have a large dependency on Netflix's business. It mentions in two places a lease like that they shared with Netflix in the sort of early days. But it doesn't mention anything about like Netflix is part of the founding story of the company. Uh, Reed Hastings nor Netflix appears on the cap table uh, when they're going public of sort of major shareholders. Which is interesting because Netflix invested $6 million when they spun it off. But I wonder if they'd just been diluted so much. One other thing, that $6 million, I tried to find uh, more information on that to figure out like if there was a valuation on the company, if they what it looked like. Uh, there's a Form D filed on Edgar, which is the SEC's website that you can go to that shows an investment. It doesn't name Netflix, it just names Reed Hastings. Uh, so maybe it was some kind of proxy thing, because uh, I assume it was Netflix. And it's scanned improperly, so like you get to read half the previous page and half of the next page while you're looking at this document and scrolling through it and none of it's in a digital format. So it's like one of these things that's like, you really have to scour to find anything and then you can't find that much other than the fact that it was killed and spun out. Amazing. And this is now a, you know, billion and a half dollar market cap public company. Crazy. So that's the story of the genesis of the one half of the streaming business for Netflix, which is the distribution, getting, getting, you know, content into people's homes. But but it turns out the other half of the streaming business, the content side, quite frankly, proves to be the harder half over the coming years, or at least the more capital intensive half. So unlike DVD rental that Ben was addressing in, in, in the follow up in the beginning of the show at the top of the episode, unlike DVD rental, there's no first sale doctrine here. So to stream content, be it, you know, shows or, or films to people via service, you have to negotiate with the rights holders of that content and you have to buy those rights from them. Now, in the early, very, very early days, the 2008, 2009, when they're just getting started here, the content companies don't really see the future as clearly as Netflix sees it here. You know, these are the days when cable network uh, content deals are like still huge and the vast, vast, vast majority of these content companies revenues. Um, so they view streaming as just kind of like a nice add on. So the first deal that um, content deal for streaming that Netflix actually does is with stars, the pay TV cable network. This is a total steal. So they do a two year deal in October 2008 with stars to get all of their content for $25 million. So this is TV shows, movies, their back catalog, everything that they have the rights to. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> stars quickly comes to regret that, but it's only a two year term. So wait, does stars, does stars actually own the rights to all those movies that they're putting on their sort of like high hundreds cable channels? Yeah. So I believe the way this works, this is, I'm, I'm mostly conjecturing here, but I, I'm recalling my old days as a media TMT investment banker uh, around this time. I believe the way it works is that stars had negotiated with the, with the content production company, Disney, Fox, you know, whoever, NBC, who had originally made the movies and, and TV shows, um, they had acquired the rights to show them on cable. And I believe it also included streaming or whatever the language was. It wasn't really something that was contemplated then, but they had the right to then resell those rights. That's a theme between music and movies. Really all media is like, you, since you don't know what the next frontier is going to be, sometimes people can sort of slip it into the contracts. Like if, if 
it's like, oh yeah, we'll just bundle in forward looking like the VR rights to this thing. And you're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. But like, you don't know what's going to end up being huge and what's not. Yep, totally. This happens. And, and Netflix also does a deal in 2008 with NBC Universal for uh, streaming access to some of their content, including Saturday Night Live. I believe streaming the day after uh, on Sunday. Um, <laughs> Once again, just like we saw with Netflix in in part one, this is like instant product market fit. So, you know, everybody who uh, has has any inkling of watching video on a, you know, computer or mobile devices are emerging any screen at this point. So, you know, mostly millennials and younger, but um, but lots of other people, too. I mean, YouTube has been around for several years at this point. They just go nuts and and this is drives tons of signups for netflix even during the recession I mean, it's a way better product i mean like why would you the old paradigm is you only watch video when it's on tv you you know when you what you want is on versus you can watch it whenever you want wherever you want like that's a no-brainer customer value prop there and i remember in the summer of 2008 previous to that I wasn't able to do netflix's what do they call it like instant watch or watch yep. now yep feature i think it was instant queue you had your regular netflix queue for dvds and then the instant queue was your queue of what you wanted to watch you know lined up uh uh, via streaming you're so right yeah and and you could only it only worked on windows because like they just hadn't they hadn't gotten around to building the sort of mac client for it yet and then when they did you had to like use i can't remember what browser it was but it only worked in one browser and you needed Silverlight. so like think about sort of remember this Oh my goodness. The way that this works today and the way that it, it used to work, it was just the kludgiest way that you could imagine trying to like, it would take 15 minutes to get the video sort of set up on your computer so you could watch it. This was the only reason I had Silverlight installed on my computers. <laughs> <laughs> wow. How quickly we forget. Yeah. This is, you know, 2009, 2010, Netflix is just, but they've beaten Blockbuster at this point. Y- yes, they're competing with Redbox, but like they're the only game in town when it comes to streaming. They are having a bonanza, just adding subscribers uh, like there's no tomorrow. And so much so that by 2010, uh, Ben gave the stat that um, today Netflix is still 15% of all U.S. internet traffic. Back then in 2010, they were 20% of all U.S. internet traffic. Oh, wow. Um, internet grew yeah i assume uh well think about how much more streaming video there is now versus in 2010 um right yeah it probably wasn't 68 percent of the internet or 58 percent of the internet then yeah i mean of course there was youtube much smaller than it was today but you know there was no uh there was no amazon prime streaming there was no facebook video there was no you know snapchat there was no instagram nothing infrastructure wise there also wasn't gigabit to the home then yep 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 and Netflix already knew this was the future. This is like not just the future. This is now. So they they realize they need to sign up as much content as possible and just keep this keep this train running. So they're willing. The content companies are also seeing this and saying, "Oh wow, we can extract a lot of dollars out of Netflix." Netflix says, "We're happy to pay dollars. We've got subscribers coming out the wazoo." They sign in 2010. A remember their their first deal with Stars was 25 million dollars. They sign an 800 million dollar deal five-year deal with epix epix now epix was a joint venture between paramount um which is part of uh viacom lionsgate paramount was the the film uh studio of viacom lionsgate independent and mgm which were 
the two remaining major independent film studios. So they get all of their content, all the back catalog, all the new content that's coming out. And MGM at the time, I remember I was working uh, on Wall Street, they were facing bankruptcy. And so they desperately needed this cash. Um, and it was this Netflix deal that uh, between epics like really keeps a lot of these companies alive through the recession. Everyone else sees this and they start coming back to stars and NBC come back. They demand much more money and Netflix realizes they need to get really smart. So they spin up a whole content acquisition department um, and they start spending a lot of money acquiring all this content. So there's there's foreshadowing there. Netflix spending a lot of money on content. OK, all right. <laughs> it's coming back. <laughs> but a, a, a quick real quick detour about the media industry. So all of these content production companies, the media industry has been around for 100 years in the U.S. There has been tons of consolidation. They are either under the same parent company in the case of like Time Warner um, or, or, or very closely tied to the cable companies, to the distribution. Like content and distribution are all within the same house. If not directly, then at least they're, they're in bed together. Also going on as a, as a result of this, cord cutting starts becoming a thing. Consumers are saying like, man, I'm getting so much great content from Netflix, from YouTube, from streaming, and it's the recession and, you know, cash is tight. Do I really need to be paying a hundred bucks a month for my cable subscription? So, so you've got the, the content side of the house then you're saying is like very incentivized to do these deals, but the distribution side of the house is like, wait uh, a minute, yeah, <laughs> this is the thing accelerating our death. Like, can we have a conversation for a minute? Yeah, exactly. So they, the distribution side of the house, the cable companies, they start getting very protective versus Netflix. Now, what do the cable companies also own most of in the US? They own the broadband pipes to people's homes. Most people in the U.S. at this point in time, and, and, and really still to this day, I would assume, are getting their internet connections in their homes that they're using to stream from their cable company, from Time Warner Cable, from Comcast, from whatever, from their cable modem. Quick side note, do you know about fast.com? Vaguely, but... So forever I use speedtest.net to test my sort of upload and download. Netflix was having all these issues through all the net neutrality stuff where, as you're about to suggest, the pipes did not like them because they were taking up most of the bandwidth but not paying anything special to be on them so netflix was getting throttled so what did they do they created fast.com and put it on the same ip block and on the same cdns as their content so then they were they ran a big campaign and encouraged users by the way fast.com is a great way to check your upload and download it is far sort of like simpler and lighter than speed test um they encourage consumers, hey, if you ever feel like, gosh, it might, why is my Netflix slow? Go to fast.com um, and, and compare that against however fast you think your internet should be. And you'll get a, a reading of, uh, you know, uh, what your ISP is actually treating us as in terms of upload and download speed. Interesting. Well, of course, Ben, what you are referencing here is throttling. The the cable companies, the the ISPs, they start throttling Netflix because it's a competitive threat to their whole business model. So what does Netflix do? <laughs> Reed Hastings is like, I can play politics. I know how this works. <laughs> Remember back to part <laughs> one uh, and his days on the uh, California Board of Education. He starts a PAC, a political action committee uh, <laughs> <laughs> called uh, not to support a particular political candidate. It's called Flix PAC uh, and it's to lobby the FCC to set up net neutrality rules so uh, if if you we all go back in the time machine a little bit here and start remembering when did net neutrality start becoming a thing when did we first start hearing about this it was in 2010 and it was because of this and it was because of netflix that really uh, remember all these campaigns about like you know net neutrality and stop sopa and all all this stuff like uh, who's behind it david some <laughs> of us some of us wrote a big 
40-page thesis paper on, <laughs> on network neutrality in 2007. So, like, you know, hipster net neutrality. Uh, <laughs> you were just ahead of the curve. <laughs> I was. It's the only time in my life I can ever claim that. <laughs> and I remember these big, huge, huge fights. And and then finally, at the end of, end of 2010, Netflix wins and the FCC approves rules essentially preventing ISPs from, from blocking content. That's under attack again today. I don't know actually the details of the latest FCC ruling. Um, this year or last year in the Trump administration, uh, I believe reversed a lot of this. This is one of those things I followed and then the rest of the world's news got so insane yeah. that I lost the thread. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. So, so I cannot speak authoritatively yeah. on this anymore. Anyway, um, so 2010 basically goes really well for Netflix. They're spending a lot of money, but they're, they're growing hugely. 2011 also starts on a very positive note. They finally launch international expansion. Now, international was hard to do with the DVD rental business because you needed, you know, basically cooperation of the national post office and all this infrastructure and everything. Um, but streaming, you know, it's just it's just bits. It's not atoms. And turns out a lot of the world speaks English, too, <laughs> and watches U.S. made uh, Hollywood uh, video content. So first, they expand first in Canada, naturally, and then before the end of the year in Mexico and Latin America. Um, and this becomes a huge, huge growth driver for them over you know the subsequent, throughout the 2010s. Now, international is a, a bigger business for Netflix than their, than their U.S. business. Um, so all going well. They're you know, still kind of on the top of the world here. And this is 2011? 2011, yep. I don't think we talked about the Chaos Monkey on the last show, correct? No, I don't know. We you didn't. heard me talk about the Chaos no, Monkey? No, go for it. All right, so... This is the the time that Netflix decides we're fully now an internet company in a bigger way, you know, that we're a streaming company. And so we need to be world class at technology. And anybody that has that watches Netflix today sort of knows like it is remarkably bulletproof. Like that it kind of always works. And how how is that? Well, Netflix invented something that you can find on GitHub now that's part of a larger suite of software uh, that's, that's open source in 2011 called the Chaos Monkey. And what the Chaos Monkey in its original incarnation did was it was a software package that you would turn on on the server, sort of on your on your whole infrastructure, and it would just start pinging around all the different you know, internals of your system and just kill random processes <laughs> at will. It was literally a Chaos Monkey. <laughs> Yeah, and and what it would do, and the f the philosophy behind the whole thing was, what better way to uh, prevent failure than to always be failing and be able to construct systems that are extremely resilient and sort of fail gracefully instead of failing in a catastrophic manner. And so, uh, some of the original things that they did were the uh, experience could degrade where the resolution would get worse, or where your recommendations weren't available, or your profile wasn't available. But you could always do the number one thing that people want to watch on Netflix which is search for a thing and then watch it. And it's just crazy impressive mentality that, you know, back in 2011, they're pioneering sort of like a, uh, it's actually, it's used in a ton of companies now. There's that book famously named Chaos Monkeys about, uh, about Silicon Valley in general. It's sort of a brilliant infrastructure decision and just showed the, uh, the sort of level of talent in the engineering department there they still run it now like nine to five or something. So they don't have to wake people up in the middle of the night because the chaos monkey tipped something over that, that, you know, was still sensitive. It's very, it's very humane. It's a humane chaos monkey. Yeah. Now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a, well, an, an apt analogy for what's about to happen here. I feel like this is also the story of the, business side of the netflix house which is like <laughs> there's a chaos monkey running amok and they keep shooting <laughs> themselves in various body parts but manage to persevere uh, and are very very robust uh, as a business so summer 2011 now 
this is when the dominoes start to tip the other way. They make an announcement. So again, we're now a couple years into this streaming business. It's again, instant product market fit. People love it. It's 20% of the internet. They know this is the future. So up until this point, everybody who was a Netflix subscriber to the DVD rental business just got the streaming baked into it. Like you just subscribed to Netflix. It's just one product. It's like Prime. We're just going to throw stuff in to sweeten the offer. Exactly. Summer 2011, they change the pricing structure. They, they issue a, a, a press release. And there are a couple, there are a few things in this press release. What gets all the attention is they come out, they build this as a price cut. <laughs> it's anything but in reality. <laughs> Come on, don't don't bury the lead. Like PR rule number no, one, no, no. if you're about to announce something that consumers hate, do not yeah. make the title, oh, you're going to love this. I thought you were accusing me of burying the lead. No, the lead comes later. Separate, no, no. Press, separate press release, but yes. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. No, 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 I'm saying, yeah, that, Netflix, d- that press release, hardcore buried yeah, the lead. Yeah, this is uh, gunshot wound, self-inflicted number one. So wh- what did they do? They they changed the pricing, their pricing tiers to, so they, they now have three options you you can subscribe to just dvd rentals and they bill that as a price cut so cheaper than what just subscribing to netflix was before (laughs) you can subscribe to meanwhile they know the greater usage is on the streaming side yeah right you can subscribe to just streaming for also cheaper than the price of the old bundled netflix plan or you can have the bundle you can have both and that goes up, uh, I think, like 20% of price or 20 or 25% or something like that. People react very negatively to this quote-unquote price cut. Um, so negatively, they lose a million subscribers basically instantly. Now, they've grown a lot. So it's not like, you know, losing a million subscribers back in part one was like losing, you know, 20% of their business. Um, but still, like, it's the stock price takes it's a beating. Yeah, it's still very significant. People people are very upset. My father was one of them. And I, I don't know if he still listens to the show, but I distinctly remember him like boycotting at netflix for a year or two before he signed back up and he was furious about this again this is the recession like it's just so tone deaf like people loved netflix like people were losing their jobs and cutting the cord on their cable company but keeping netflix because this was like their you know their happiness like it was like one of the most high whatever the you know those brand ratings that they do netflix was like up there with apple and amazon and like the very very best best brands in america and this just did huge damage people felt betrayed their stock plummeted too i mean i think netflix has always sort of been valued on their subscriber growth and actually more recently really on sort of what their uh, projected subscriber growth will be next quarter Um, and this was to to have a down quarter where they actually lost subscribers it was like what the only time this had happened in the past is what we saw in part one when when blockbuster launched uh, total access so what are they going to do? Hastings has a plan, of course. Now, uh, we should know, I, I forgot to mention earlier, um, at the end of 2010, also something, you know, long time coming, foreshadowed that we knew happened, but sad for Netflix, their great hero, Barry McCarthy, uh, retires and leaves the company. He decided not to leave his friends in the knife fight against Blockbuster, or I'm sorry, against Amazon when they thought that Amazon was coming in. And so uh, now now they're safe, so he can leave. He, he leaves and uh, he takes some time. He, he becomes an investor with TCV and um, then does his short stint at Clinkle and then joins Spotify, uh, as, as we talked about in that episode. But back to Netflix. So there's no, no Barry McCarthy. Reed, you know, he has a plan to address this issue. He thinks that the way to do it is, you know, he knows the future. It's the public that doesn't get it. They don't get that streaming is the future. He is going to open their eyes to this. He just needs to push harder. In that first press release about the price 
cut, quote unquote, that got so much negative reaction, kind of at the end, he said, you know, and this is a precursor to we are going to spin off the DVD rental as a separate business eventually. He decides that the way to fix all of this is explain that this is really part of the bigger strategy and to do this spin off and execute it and show America like the path forward <laughs> so he decides the way he's going to do this so so the plan is that they're spinning off the dvd rental business into quickster and a longtime netflix um executive who we didn't talk about in the last episode andy rendich who who ran um i believe ran all dvd operations he's going to be the ceo now now of quickster yeah and he'd been there for like 12 years yeah or something. he'd been there for a long 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 time how are they going to do this they're going to do what you know all the hip kids are doing these days they're going to make a, a video and they're going to post it on youtube and it'll go viral and everybody will understand Boom. you know the vision great it's gonna be this is like the the 7-eleven <laughs> dude at blockbuster coming back and be like the kids they're gonna come they're gonna eat pizza at the blockbuster stores <laughs> Was it was it party on the block? Uh, was uh, his thing? Rock the block, rock the rock block. the block. This is the yeah. rock the block moment for Netflix. <laughs> They're gonna post a viral video on YouTube. Well, they make a video. Um, Reed and <laughs> and uh, and Andy, they they make a video, and it does go viral uh, in September 2011. <laughs> uh, hashtag winning. Hashtag winning. Um, but it goes viral for the wrong reasons we will link to this video in the show notes it is still on the netflix youtube channel i think this might be the most painful is thing i've really? ever yep it's still there i so I, I thought it would be you know on youtube somebody else and many people have mirrored it and you know copied it on, on their accounts it's still on the netflix account <laughs> this is amazing <laughs> they're proud they're proud oh my god this is the one of the most painful videos i've ever watched in my life I, imagine the least like cool most fake like corporate like dad thing you could ever imagine and and then multiply by 10 that's this <laughs> it's so bad <laughs> and it's a three and a half minute video the two of them basically like it's like scripted so like they're trying to be hip and cool they're on like patio furniture outside the netflix headquarters and reed is wearing like a like a teal like shirt he's got his goatee and like most people have never seen reed in person at this point listeners if 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 this is ever us and like we are, we become like tone deaf, <laughs> like well, maybe we are already. Please write us emails. Yeah. Please acquire at fm at gmail.com. Oh, don't worry. If we do something <laughs> like this, I wouldn't be worried about getting feedback because within like days of this getting posted, <laughs> read on, on his personal blog, he gets 30,000 comments on his blog basically <laughs> just trashing him for like how bad this is so saturday night live they it's so this goes so viral they parody the video on saturday night live they've uh fred armison the um uh you know the portlandia guy <laughs> he's andy i think and i forget who does uh, does read we'll link to this in the show notes too and it's just like <laughs> it's so funny you know the stock price got crushed the first press release this time it gets crushed even for like netflix and quickster basically become the laughing stock of the internet um hey <laughs> a lot of their big bets pay off a lot of them don't but they know, take big bets they take they take big bets this is one they really should have thought through a little more before the July press release, they were trading at $305 a share. After the Quickster announcement, they're down to $65 a share. So they lose like, what is that, 80% of their value as a company in like a couple months here. And and the Quickster thing itself, like part of it is, a big part is the way they announced this and how this went down. It's also just like, it's half-baked. Like this is not a good product. This is not well executed. This is not well thought through. So customers when they, they announce the spinoff and do it, you have to have a separate account on 
Quickster and Netflix, separate billing, separate queues that you manage, separate customer service, like separate company, man. What do you expect? Yeah. Talk about like a terrible (laughs) experience. Uh, This is this is like the kicker here. Netflix didn't even grab the Quickster Twitter handle. So there was some dude out there <laughs> who had the Quickster Twitter <laughs> handle and uh, fairly he was like a pot smoking like soccer player guy and he's like just starts trolling Netflix and is like publicly extorting them and like, you know, oh, so bad, so bad. What is the net of this? What, what all happens within one month? It was September when they do this ill-advised YouTube video announcing Quickster within a month they cancel Quickster. They completely unwind the whole company. <laughs> Andy uh, Rendich, you know, the 12-year the next Netflix veteran who'd been tapped as CEO, like he's gone. <laughs> he resigns. He leaves the company. Uh, everybody, you know, like half the people who'd gone over to Quickster, they get laid off. They're gone. Like they just completely like, I mean, this is one thing about Netflix and 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 Reed is like they make big decisions. They make them confidently. And, um, you know, if they're the wrong thing, then they pull the plug. So they they pull the plug on Quickster. Another bad thing for Netflix, oh, well, bad thing at the time, I think good thing in the long term, happens for them in 2011. Amazon, they didn't launch the Netflix competitor in the DVD streaming, in the DVD rental era. They launched the Netflix streaming competitor, Amazon Instant Video, and they get into the streaming game. And then early in 2012, they also do a deal with Epix, the joint venture that Netflix had done a deal with, spend, I think, about the same amount of money, about a billion dollars, get all the same content. And so now, not only has Netflix just shot themselves, you know, in multiple body parts with this Quickster thing, now they have Amazon out there, which is offering Amazon Instant Video bundled with Prime. If you are a Prime subscriber already, like Netflix is like, oh, yeah, yeah, you were paying for Netflix. Like now I'm going to make you pay twice for this. Amazon's like, oh, great. Have it Oh, yeah. For you free. want this entire company's value prop for free? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do, you know, sweetens our offering a little bit. Yeah. Here you go. So the net result of this is 2012 is a tough, tough year for, for Netflix. I didn't go back and verify every quarter, but I believe they missed their subscriber targets every quarter of the year. Um, the stock price is totally languishing, uh, still around the $60 a share. You know, one thing they do start in 2012, though, that uh, is a name no one will recognize, but foreshadows everything to come, is uh, Netflix produced their very first show called Lilyhammer. Yes, they do, which was a Sopranos clone. Um I don't think it does very. I mean, I don't. I don't never seen it. Um, I've never watched it. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, harbinger of good things to come. Uh, but one more bad thing in 2012. This is <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Let's go back to the bad. Let's parts. go back to the bad stuff. Let's keep ripping on Netflix. It'll just make their rise so much better. This was a, another unbelievable thing that uh, I, I, I again I didn't know about the first part in part one, and I didn't know about the second part here. You cannot make this stuff up, even if you did a Netflix special. Carl Eichen, who comes in to, you know, the stock price is languishing by the end of 2012, who returns but acquired Supervillain. and he's like, Barry McCarthy's gone. Great. <laughs> my, take another go at this I'll one. Take another go at this one. He is back in the movie business game. He announces that he has accumulated a 10% equity stake in Netflix on the public markets. Uh, I believe this is October 2012. And, uh, you know, he's going to start getting involved. I love how this happens, too. Like in in public companies, you can just slowly buy and buy and buy and buy. And then, you know, you don't want to announce that you're buying because it'll move the stock price. And then, like, suddenly you just say, hey, guys, you may not know this, but through various sources, I have a tenth of your company. Yeah. 
incredible. You know, he thinks that that really what Netflix should do, you know, they've been so much mismanagement here, you know, the, uh, but it's there's so much value in streaming is the future. Uh, they met, represent strategic value. They should sell themselves to a media company or, or to another tech company. Do you know if he held... Like, is he still a major Netflix shareholder? He held until 2015, and then he announced in 2015 that he had uh, liquidated his whole stake. I believe it was about halfway through 2015. He made a ton of money, a ton of money. But the only, I guess, good thing for um, people who dislike uh, Carl Eichner, uh, uh, if you're if you're on the superhero side of the house here, is he misses out on like a ton of gains still. And like he believed in 2015 that like. Amazon was going to crush them. And well, um, that hasn't happened. So he missed out on the majority of gains that he could have had. But 2012, despite all this bad stuff that happens, Netflix now, like they're, they've really been the only player in this huge new market of streaming for the last, you know, at this point, three plus years, they start figuring a couple things out that, that nobody else has figured out yet. Uh, and this is really what what saves the company. They realize they start see, seeing the data for the, how people are streaming. They're doing two things that were not obvious. One, they're binge watching. So like when somebody sits down to start streaming Netflix, they stream for a long time. And if they're watching like a, a, a TV series or something, they watch just episode after episode. And, and up until this point, the media content industry operated on this assumption. I remember this of like appointment viewing, you know, like, you know, people tuned in at 8 p.m. on, you know, Wednesday to watch the latest episode of Mad Men or whatever. And like Which that with, was with linear television, that is still what works. All the top shows on linear TV are still exactly that. And actually, most of them are live. It's just all set around these like standalone, like half an hour or one hour, like get your fix and then tune in next week. And and they realize that that's not what people want. They want to watch the whole thing all at once. And related to that, the other thing that they figure out is unlike the DVD rental business, the content that really works in streaming is television shows, not films, not not these self-contained, you know, two to three hour films but like really really long form episodic content that people can binge watch television at this point this they're kind of like the you know the little sibling of the of the media world like it was the big blockbuster movies that everybody wanted to make yeah so this brings back an interesting and and classic acquired fashion jumping forward to tech themes um and we'll pull it back but this brings back something that i think we talked about in the marvel episode that is there's been a trend i'm gonna get the numbers wrong but if you look at like in 1985 out of the top 25 movies the number uh that were sequels it was like three and if in 2015 it was the exact opposite like 22 were either sequels or some form of unoriginal ip so you have this trend going on where hollywood is spending more and more money on films so because they're spending a hundred million dollars plus on every single production they're taking less risk so they want more sort of sure things so they're reusing ip um, from you know children's stories or 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 bringing back movies from the 80s and 90s so the experimentation needs to f- go somewhere it's kind of the same thing as like startups like the, the sort of the lean startup where, where do you sort of prototype whether ip is good or not so it sort of opens up the opportunity for this golden era of of television or golden era of of you know tv shows that attracts really top-notch both writers directors actors and it really blows the doors wide open for some the best people in the business who don't want to be part of Aquaman 7 to go and do something creative and original. And and Netflix is sort of the place where you could actually facilitate that format. 
Ben, you referenced Lilyhammer in in 2012. You know, the one probably in and of itself wasn't that much of a bright spot, but that was what you know the sign that Netflix had finally kind of figured this out. What they'd learned from their customers was, hey, we should, we need to pump more, you know, episodic series based quote unquote television content into the streaming platform. So they they make Lilyhammer. They released it in 2012, and then in 2013 they do two things. One, they bring back, I remember when this happened, uh, even though I wasn't a fan of the show, but it was just such a big deal. They bring back Arrested Development. Yeah. <laughs> it was worse, but better. Like it was more complex and crazy than the original Arrested Development, but like somehow it just, it didn't quite have the magic, but it was good enough that like you got your fix of, of what you felt like you'd been well, missing. Well, it's such a good example of giving people what they want, you know, for this new platform. And then the other thing they do, they, they debut in early 2013 is their first real big swing at content, House of Cards. And this was just such a seminal moment. I did some research on this because I remember at the time, I binge-watched the whole first and second seasons pretty aggressively, and uh, I was, was a huge fan of the show. I remember at the time reading about it and just thinking like, wow, this is so special. This company spent $100 million across these first two seasons. And I remember looking it up at the time, and I just sort of went back now to double-check all that and see, like, what a big bet that was. So this is in early 2013. In 2012, the company had $290 million of cash on hand, and they had committed $100 million to creating just this two seasons of this one show. A few more stats on this. So like the even the total current assets, including their entire content library, prepaid content, short-term investments, all of that was just over $2 billion. So like what a colossal bet for the company. Now, if you go to today, like they have $3 billion in cash alone, close to $9 billion in total assets. You know, you can sort of see how they're investing so much in content. But like they created a cultural moment around oh my god kevin spacey and this incredibly high production value thing just dropped on netflix yeah well and it's crazy like uh, they i mean one as we've seen time and time and time again with this company when they swing they swing hard but this was one unlike the quickster debacle like this was so informed like of course they couldn't know what was going to happen with house of cards but it was f- informed by all the advantages they had so they knew you know kevin spacey we've learned a lot more about kevin spacey since 2013 but at the time he was this like actor that everybody kind of knew about him but nobody he wasn't like a box office draw like there wasn't if you had a blockbuster movie coming out you didn't want to cast Dude, what are you kevin talking about <laughs> Case in point, uh, you don't want to cast Kevin Spacey. You know he's not Leonardo DiCaprio here. K-Pax was great. <laughs> <laughs> don't hate him. Maybe there was less of us that that loved it, but it was great. <laughs> well, he didn't have mass appeal to the traditional Hollywood movie studios. However, Netflix saw that people because you know, they had all the data on what people were watching. That once people watched a Kevin Spacey streamed a Kevin Spacey movie, they tended to go find all the other movies that he had been oh, in. That's so and powerful. Watch them, and they're like, okay, there's something going on here. And then House of Cards had been a British show uh, that they readapted to the U.S. And the British show was on Netflix, and they were like, man, nobody knows about this thing, but like people love it. When people start watching it, they get totally hooked, and then they binge it. So what do they do when they release House of Cards? They release, I, I believe this is the first time this had ever happened. They release all 13 episodes of the season all at once. People in the content industry are like, why are you doing this? You're completely upending the model. Like, you know, you're not going to like, you're going to miss the ability to draw out this whole thing over a period of time. Like completely like huge win for Netflix. 
it was David Fincher too, right? He directed it or, or wrote it. Yeah, I think something so. yeah. like that. And this, he, he was super hot at the time because he had just done the social network and the girl with the dragon tattoo. Yep, that's right. That's right. Huge win with House of Cards in early 2013. Subscriptions pour in because, again, this is the first time there's like this you know, water cooler moment. Uh, everybody in America is talking about House of Cards and you can get the whole season and binge watch it all at once. And people are doing this. And like the only way you can do that is if you subscribe to Netflix. So subscriptions pour in. The stock goes back up for the first time over $200. Remember, it was $300 before the whole Quickster debacle. So they're finally like getting back up. And, and then they followed. They, they realized this is going to work. So then this is the beginning of going all in on this content acquisition and, and production strategy. Later in the year, they do a deal with Marvel uh, before Marvel gets acquired by Disney to create episodic TV content around Marvel superheroes. This is like Daredevil and um, was it Luke Cage and all the stuff you see on Netflix. Uh, this is where all this comes from. In 2014, they realize, man, we've got this like this this flywheel effect here where the more great original content that we have original and exclusive content that leads to more subscribers the more subscribers that we get the more financial ability we have to invest in original and acquired exclusive content how can we start accelerating this flywheel even more we can do this with debt capital like this is we have a very predictable subscription-based business if we can forecast our subscriber growth accurately and ben you alluded to this about subscriber growth becoming the big thing for netflix we should be able to raise debt ahead of this and use that debt to invest in content which we will know will drive subscriptions so 2014 they basically changed their whole capital market strategy they'd been you know like most tech companies at this point no debt completely equity financed and, and cash flow positive they start raising debt and investing it into content to the point where now today they have over eight billion dollars in debt and and for folks that sort of don't deal in the equity versus debt world this is the perfect thing to take debt for it, you as a company like it because it's non-dilutive capital so nobody's equity is getting pushed down the people who are issuing you debt are very happy to give it because you can provide them incredibly high certainty about what your ability to uh, repeatedly sort of generate cash on cash returns from you investing that that again the, the magic of subscription based businesses that we've talked about on acquired like you know what your revenues and cash flows are going to be <laughs> yeah and to like way oversimplify it i mean if you know that you have a 10% interest rate on that debt, but you know that by spending that to accelerate your flywheel, you can get 20% per year. It's like, how, how much debt can we have? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So they start slowly. They do, uh, I believe, a $400 million bond deal in uh, 2014. And then they start getting bigger and bigger to the point where their most recent bond deal that I think they did this month in October 2018 was $2 billion. And, and they have $8 billion in, in total debt outstanding. You know, which is a huge amount for a tech company. But but again, based on the cash flow dynamics and the subscription dynamics of this business, as long as they are for, act, can accurately forecast subscriber growth, yeah, uh, it, it can work. Yeah, I mean, unless there's some, if there's some competitive thing, I mean, as we saw with Tesla, like if there's something that materially changes, David, to go back to your thing from the, uh, the LP show, the going sideways and sort of explaining what that is, when you rack up a lot of debt with a belief that you're going to have very predictable cash flows and then there's something um, structural that changes in the industry, that's when you can open yourself up to a world of hurt. So that's sort of the only reason why you wouldn't want to just keep stacking it. Yep. I mean, that's the danger of, uh, of debt. So far, though, it's worked really, really well. So, you know, to wrap things up and get us get us to today, um, summer of 2014, as they're 
investing heavily into this strategy, they passed 50 million global subscribers, uh, 36 million in the US, 14 million internationally. Then in, in 2016, in January, they make a big announcement at CES uh, that they are launching worldwide in 150 countries. I believe literally every country except mainland China, uh, North Korea, and one or two others. Um, Crimea. Yeah. <laughs> Crimea and Syria. Yeah. And of course, it's all you know English-based. They haven't actually translated Netflix into all these languages yet, although they, they start that project, and now I believe they have translated into many of these languages. They passed 75 million subscribers globally. During the year in 2016, they released 126 original films and tv shows series more than any other content company out there period <laughs> any other cable channel or, or or network now actually i don't know if that includes like the I, I believe it's less than the big conglomerates like disney as a whole or viacom as a whole um but of any one like division like netflix is the largest single content production company and then the irony of ironies is in 2016 they actually do finally successfully execute the spinoff with quickster they just don't call it quickster <laughs> dvd.com if you go to dvd.com that is the dvd rental business for netflix so you can no longer subscribe uh to the online dvd rental uh via netflix you now have to go to this separate company <laughs> separate login dvd.com but is it a separate company like it's different shareholders uh it is a it is a dvd.com quote a netflix company so i believe it is 100 percent owned by netflix and it, uh wholly owned subsidiary and it has something like they do like 120 million in revenue a year and like say 60 million in profit or like, you know, cash flow. So yeah, nice, you know, but you know, classic it's a growth stock. <laughs> yeah. Right. Value stock, value stock. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, things just keep going from there. So this year in 2018, they passed a hundred billion dollar market cap. There've been several stock splits uh, over the last few years. So the stock price isn't, isn't quite the same, but now, you know, in October, 2018, um, you know, they just announced earnings and they now have just under 60 million U.S. subscribers. So if you go on a household basis, uh, assume there are 100-ish million U.S. households, that's 60% of the U.S. market, larger than any cable company in America, Comcast, Time Warner, you know, uh, what have you, Charter, and 137 million subscribers worldwide. Uh, which is just incredible. If you look at that sort of third quarter announcement, sort of play forward what it's going to be by the end of the year, they're going to do close to $15 billion in revenue this year and over a billion in, in net income or profit. And I think this will be their first year that they that they do a billion dollars in, in net, net income. Yeah. One of my other favorite stats on catching us up to today, in the first half of 2018, the stock doubled. So I think that was something like $70 billion of market cap were created. Like $70 billion market cap companies don't double in six months. Not that uh, stock price is necessarily exactly value creation, but um, yeah, yeah. Pretty, it's pretty impressive. Well, and this is, you know, maybe something to get into here in, in tech themes. It's probably the right moment to transition into it. You know, for years, People have been talking about the Fang stocks and, and lumping Netflix in with um, you know, with Facebook, with Amazon, with Google. Uh, but Netflix is actually much for for most of the last few years and, and even today, much much smaller than those companies. And you know, I think that's how you can get such uh, you know a doubling in, in market cap is you know they are only quote unquote I think about a hundred and thirty billion dollar market cap company. You know, compare that to the you know five hundred billion to trillion dollar market caps of the other Fang companies. 
Another interesting data point about them being smaller, I was surprised to learn they only had 5,500 employees, where if you look at someone like an Amazon who has you know, 8x the market cap, but they have 100x the employees. Compared to the other FANG stocks, they have remarkably few employees for their valuation. Because you look at Microsoft that has 130, Amazon has over 600,000, Apple has 132,000, including retail, you know, even Facebook's over 30,000, Google at 85. I mean, there's, there's no one that's down in this sort of like sub 10,000 employee category. I, I sort of wonder two things. One, is it because their product offering is so simple that most of the sort of product and engineering work that you would you know, typically have big teams on is, is a lot of sort of infrastructure and that they've really pared down the, the product line to be pretty streamlined. But I also wonder a lot of these people that are working on these productions, I mean, those aren't employees. You sort of staff up those productions and staff them down on sort of a contract basis. Are, are we like ankles deep into, uh, into the water of tech themes now? <laughs> Let's do it. We're doing this. All right. I mean, at this point, we're two and a half hours into history of Netflix. I, th- I think we can get into tech <laughs> themes. <laughs> there was a great tweet a while ago. It was from one of John Gruber's like three and a half hour podcast on the talk show that was like, I can't remember the last time I wasn't listening to the talk show. <laughs> it's like, uh, we hope to not quite get there, but um, we do actually have a pretty good meaty tech themes part because I think whereas the last episode was really more narrative, this one, there's a lot of good analysis to be done on, on, on Netflix. And so I'll start with some of the more sort of like uh, things that are interesting to point out, but not crazy analytical. So one of them is there's a, a great Business Insider page, and we'll we'll uh, link to this in the show notes, that shows the evolution of the homepage over the years. I was thinking about it. It seems very obvious to go to Netflix now and, and just start watching. Like, that's what you do. You go to Netflix, you start watching. Um, but they had to do a ton of education over the years, both on the sort of innovative DVD model um, and then on this crazy idea that you could stream movies over the internet on your computer. And for many years there in the awkward middle, the the homepage was like this cluttered mess to explain how to do all this. So there was like one half of it was like, one, two, three, like we will mail you a DVD, you will watch it, you will put it in this envelope, you will mail it back. And these like infographics of how to do that, because that, that was confusing. And then on top, it was like, or instant, like click here, then download Silverlight. And I mean, there's this big, hairy explanation to consumers to tell people what they did. And today you go to netflix.com, you don't have any options. Like they've done a tremendous job, number one, doing what they needed to do to be sort of really messy to educate people on what are these paradigms that we're basing our company around. But then also once they've sort of hit critical mass and this this tipping point where now they can be incredibly simple and there's a bunch of stuff that they've cut over time that has been really like it's crazy looking at the Netflix today and thinking about the Netflix that that was. So the things that they've done that have, have been less over time, you know, DVDs are this subsidiary. They spun out the set-top box. They said no to vending machines. They deprecated a lot of these things that were brands. So like search on their site used to be FlixFinder and their algorithm used to be Cinematch. And they like, they, they were, it was all about having all these like branded things that they were telling you about themselves. They, in 2013 or something, launched this very advanced social feature where you would connect your Facebook and then it would make recommendations based on things that your friends liked. They've completely cut that. And the only thing you can do with Facebook anymore is log in with Facebook. I mean, it really reminds me of the time the the Steve Jobs coming back to Apple and pointing out the product matrix and saying like, we're getting rid of three quarters of this. Uh, Netflix never really changed leaderships, but sort of spiritually, they had this moment where the public now knew what they did and they could sort of drop all of the posturing and all of the education and just be 
we deliver this thing that has an incredible value prop and perfect product market fit, and that's all we do. Mm. The one that that just sparked was um, we didn't really talk about Amazon uh, and and the history and facts, other than mention that you know they launched uh, what instant video that became Prime Video. I think all that that really did. Everybody was so terrified of it, uh, and in 2012, that was part of you know why it was such a bad year for Netflix and the stock price. In a market that is growing so big and growing so fast as streaming, you know, like the streaming market is is displacing the cable, all of video content consumption, uh, you know, in America. That is a way bigger market than the DVD rental business. So, like in a smaller market, like still very large yet smaller market, like the DVD rental business, Blockbuster and Netflix fighting it out, like eventually became like a, a, a you know a fight to the death, but still even though these companies are so big amazon video uh, amazon's video division and, and netflix like the market is so big they are just helping one another amazon launching even like an essentially free version of netflix is just helping netflix grow right now i think and likewise netflix is just helping amazon video grow because they're each adding like their own exclusive content uh and and people are like well you know i really want to like i want to watch man in the high castle and i want to watch house of cards so like i'm just going to subscribe to both and like they're educating the market you know both ways so interesting to think about myself in that situation like i'm subscribed to netflix because that's where i go to watch stuff i'm subscribed to amazon because of course i'm going to subscribe to prime other than like the the exclusives i really just haven't gone there to watch stuff and i don't know i think lots of our listeners probably are like i watch all my stuff there but for whatever reason like netflix is the the default for me and it's only when i hit the wall of i can't find anything do i go over to to Amazon. I'm not sure I would pay for Amazon if it wasn't bundled into my Prime subscription. Well, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, we're going to hit, people have been forecasting this, but it hasn't seemed to happen yet, hit subscription fatigue, where it's like, look, I'm not going to do my HBO now and Netflix and Amazon and Disney effing plus. <laughs> um, like, I, you know, well, I think we'll have to see. Um, yeah, we'll have to see how, how to vote. See where that lands and see what people's comfort number is. Yeah. But it's interesting, like, to this point, like, it hasn't, I don't think any of these companies have hurt one another. Uh, Amazon is definitely behind in subscribers. I think that in the same research report that said that Amazon, that Netflix was 15% of internet traffic, the amount that you can attribute to uh, Prime Video, I think is like, or Amazon Video at all is like less than a third of that. Interesting. The the other quick tech theme that w- we talk about all the time on this show, um, but that this uh, highlighted for me, uh, which... Dan Hill on the latest LP episode you know, talked about if you make something that people love, it can kind of overcome all sins, right? Like Netflix kept screwing up so <laughs> many times about the, you know, product wise, all the stuff you were just talking about, like the whole Quickster thing. But like at the end of the day, like people loved the fact that they could, you know, binge watch all 13 episodes of House of Cards. Like how amazing is that? Of course they're going to tell their friends. And if you can make something that people love that they will tell their friends about, like that is a recipe for success, you know, despite many other failures along the way. All right, drifting toward business model, the magic of zero distribution costs, and particularly when you don't have a rev share in place, is you know worth talking about here. Where this is, you know, if you compare Netflix to like a Spotify, for example, Netflix licenses all of this content upfront or creates it, so they don't even have any licensing fee. They just sort of create it and take all the risk um, or spend to create all that risk. So then all the marginal revenue goes to them. But you know they they have high capital costs, high operational costs, very high fixed costs to create this content, but like little little marginal costs. So then the game for them becomes like, okay, how much can we blow it out uh, once we have this thing? How can we get the maximum utilization out of that asset? This 
kind of dives into two points that uh, Ben Thompson of Stratechery talks about these, and they're fantastic points. And I'd say he talks about them so often and makes them so well that we would be remiss not to sort of credit him with this thinking when we talk about it. You know, now that Netflix has this huge subscriber base, as I sort of mentioned, how big can we blow it out? They can dump $100 million into things like House of Cards without batting an eyelash since the cost of producing a show is spread across a massive amount of subscribers. So their strategy to produce a broad set of shows for a broad audience is the winning strategy in this market. And compare that against what HBO was thinking a few years ago, and some others have done this too, of we want to produce amazingly well-produced content that really hits home for a narrow audience. You just can't amortize the cost of that across nearly as many people. And so over time, like you just can't afford to spend to create the best content because you just don't have as many people to deliver it to. You know, you can find yourself between a rock and a hard place if you're not thinking about the same thing that Netflix is thinking about, which is more subscribers to sort of reduce the per person cost of producing expensive content. For sure, that is a winning strategy. They've also done both, right? Where like there's a tons of niche like Netflix produced niche content on Netflix. Uh, they just don't spend that much money on it. Like, I feel like they're really good analytically at understanding like what is the ROI in terms of uh, either new subscriber growth or subscriber retention that we're going to get for this piece of content. And for something like House of Cards, that's going to be so broad-based in, in reach, like they can spend $100 million for something like a documentary on... Um, uh, there's actually a pretty good like documentary on um, like the roots of hip hop on uh, Netflix that I watched on a plane once and like, you know, uh, great. Lots of people should watch it. Right. But it's not like it's clearly low budget, you know, like they did the math on how much they could invest in that. <laughs> There's also a pretty bad documentary on Vince Carter called The Carter Effect. They make all <laughs> kinds of uh... yes. <laughs> might have watched that late one night. Well, okay, so I'll throw out a little counter argument to that. So the thing that drives new subscriber growth for them is hit shows. So when they have a quarter that tons and tons and tons of people uh, come and sign up for Netflix, it's because they have an Orange is the New Black that draws in all the people. You know, Netflix's strategy has, has been to stay away from sports and live and things like that that are not evergreen content. Even though they, they want to create evergreen content and they amass this really rich catalog, there is a little devil in the details that is people that sign up that quarter are probably signing up because they have this new hit piece of content that, that everybody's coming for. And so uh, I think your point still stands that they'll spend a bunch of money on the big splashy thing and then they'll spend a little bit of money producing sort of the long tail of niche-based stuff to make sure they satisfy all the different niches on their, their platform. But I felt it would be a, a failure not to point that out. Okay, I have another one that I've been like almost talking about that I want to I want to actually hit. And this is another good strategy thing. So Netflix's flywheel. So they focus on this content that's relatively evergreen staying away from live. So the more capital that they amass either through debt or equity or earnings, the more content they can license or produce which then makes the product better for users. So more users come to pay and then kind of feeds back into that cycle of the more capital they amass. So then theoretically, they have this thing going on where the product actually gets better because the catalog gets richer. So either they can charge more money over time, or they can keep their prices the same and reduce marketing costs to reach people that would have been reticent to pay for a worse product. But now that the product is amazing because it has all this content, we can actually start to like really saturate the far edges while keeping the price point the same for people that previously wouldn't have wanted it that bad. A lot of things about how they've structurally set up the business 
enable them to create this virtuous cycle and succeed more as they scale instead of less as they scale. Because I think for a lot of businesses, like cost of acquiring a customer goes up over time because you've already hit all your best customers and gotten them and then you have to spend more. But they just have this amazing characteristic where the product gets better. It's funny, I hadn't quite thought about this, but it's a little bit like uber right like there there are a few of these businesses out there that are truly special where you actually have a period in your growth curve where your customer acquisition cost goes down uh now i don't know we i haven't done the analysis or map to know if this uh what you're saying is is true about netflix but but it makes sense at least uh intellectually like uber got to a point i believe it's now probably their incremental cost of customer acquisition at this point is probably going up. But there was a point where it went down massively because the service improved so much with density and ubiquity of adoption. Um, Dude, I, th- I think it's a tipping point. Like if you think about Uber, it's like it needs to get sufficiently good so that there's a ride within three minutes. And then I kind of don't care how many drivers are on the platform after that. But Netflix may not have this sort of point of inversion where it's like literally always more content is better. Mm, Interesting. Yeah. But there's probably diminishing returns on that too. Actually, that's a pretty interesting framework to think about uh, marketplace or aggregator or platform businesses. When is it that they don't have that good enough sort of like uh, point where the more you operate, the more valuable you get indefinitely? instead of with diminishing returns. One more point to make here, which is kind of just an interesting thing to know about the company. Over the last three years, Netflix has grown its subscriber base by 30% year over year, give or take like 1%. Basically every year they're, they're growing 30%. Interestingly, they're, they're basically, the, the company is extremely data-driven about when to uh, do marketing spend and sort of when they feel it's a good idea to go and spend on customers. So I think a lot of this stuff we're, we're sort of talking about is is true in the abstract, like the product getting more valuable over time, uh, new big hits drawing people in. But Netflix, based on their earnings reports, appears to care about growing 30% year over the year and then flexing different levers to get there. So sometimes they spend more money on content, which for other companies you can sort of think about as product mm-hmm. investment. No, is there product? Um, and so Sometimes they, yeah, and sometimes they spend more money on marketing. And I think it's probably, I would imagine the way that it kind of works is like when they feel like they have an opportunity to create a superstar show, they go hard into it. If it works and they're going to hit their 30% growth and they don't need to do an enormous amount of marketing spend, if it doesn't, then they need to do more marketing spend to bring people onto the platform. Um, it's just kind of an interesting way to think about driving the business. And since that's been so constant, it's sort of clear uh, what levers they're moving to accomplish what end. I'm so glad we took like all of this time to dive into Netflix. Like I at least did not understand this company or its history at all before diving in here, despite how nominally ubiquitous it is in, in Silicon Valley. One last thing. I also assumed before really like diving in and looking at market caps that they were much bigger than they are because people talk about them in, as a fang stock and like what are the fang stocks? There's this great... Yet another thing we'll link to in the show notes, a great tweet today by uh, Benedict Evans at Andreessen Horowitz with a graph showing on the x-axis revenue, on the y-axis revenue growth and sort of plotting all these companies like Apple, Amazon, Google, Facebook. They're sort of understandably at least way far to the right in terms of total revenue and, and also growing pretty quickly. Netflix is like 
way smaller in terms of revenue than than these other companies and also not like they have less growth revenue growth than facebook does less than amazon does like we talk about them like they're this you know they're one of those five but it's kind of arbitrary and that's that's the point ben is making i think again if i were to put my old media tmt investment banker hat back on i think maybe the justification for that is that is is back to just like the stability and predictability of subscription-based businesses like the thing about netflix is like they know you know they know what their revenue is going to be to the extent that they understand their churn rates and their gross subscriber ads churn and then thus net subscriber you know growth or, or losses uh, well and can forecast that accurately like that is an incredibly stable and predictable business and and that has value in terms of valuation versus like a you know an amazon uh well prime is a part of it but like you're just buying stuff on amazon like you may buy more you may buy less you know like or you know facebook advertisers may advertise more may advertise less same for google or apple may create a hit product may not you know there's just a uh, more inherent unpredictability there yeah still feels arbitrary <laughs> uh, true well that's right. why we're no longer investment bankers <laughs> is there something worth grading in here so we talked about grading the spin-off of the dvd business just to have something to grade i think it's worth it to just do it quickly i mean like it's really like what if they didn't yeah what if they didn't i mean of course it was the right thing to do the future was streaming the dvd rental business online dvd rental business was going to go the way of the offline dvd rental business of blockbuster like that market is it still exists but was shrinking of course they had to transition the company they just executed it terribly the first time and then executed it the right way the second time where they just didn't talk about it (laughs) i would say like um a for strategy f for execution like f minus for execution but uh i don't know what's what's your take yeah i'm with you the only thing that i have on sort of execution is like do you group timing into execution because i think they couldn't they couldn't have done it quietly when they did it and the question is should they have done it a different way at the time probably but how much better could you have done it or you know was it was it pressing did it need to be done then or could it wait three years yeah no there's no reason to do it then other than reed hastings feeling like he you know wanted to be you know push america and the the public into his vision of the future which was correct it was just you know he just should have waited a couple years (laughs) which gets into and i know we're past tech themes but like steve jobs and apple do this all the time and they take shit for it and then it's fine like they pulled the floppy drive out of the imac and they pulled the headphone jack off the phone and like you know you could argue that was a little too early but Apple usually gets these things right, though, like (laughs) when they pulled the headphone jack, like they released AirPods, you know, it's like, here's a better alternative. The thing is, when when the Quickster, when they did Quickster, streaming wasn't better. It was better on some dimensions, but a lot of the content wasn't available, you know, and so like it wasn't quite there that it was just obviously better on all dimensions to go to the new thing And Apple toes this line for sure. But like, but they present you with the like. Here, if you buy this, if you buy the AirPods, they're amazing. They're way better. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Carve-outs? Carve-outs. Mine real quick. I believe on the Zappos episode with Alfred Lin, uh, we did a carve-out of Justin O'Byrne's, um Google versus Apple Maps uh, deep analysis. You're remembering what carve-outs were on what episodes? <laughs> yeah, man. We go deep Next here. level. <laughs> uh, he did an awesome follow-up this month um, on the new Apple Maps. And is it... Uh, is it now better than Google Maps? Spoiler alert, no. <laughs> in, in some ways, if you're uh, in interested ways, in, yeah. in forests. 
Yeah, in in some ways, but yeah, um, well worth the whole read. Um, amazing work, uh, as was the last one. I've got a podcast to recommend. It is from the very first person that I followed on Twitter. I discovered this the other day when taking a deep dive down the Twitter rat hole, Kevin Rose. I used to be like a really big Dignation fan. I, I think I watched every episode of Dignation. Yeah, when, when he was on um, Tech TV, uh, the screensavers. Oh, yeah, and then G, oh, G4. Yeah. G4? Oh, yeah. Those were, oh, I used to watch that in high school. It was, that was actually, <laughs> that show was like a big part about me wanting to like get into tech. Dude, um, and it was a cable channel. Like that, I know. Like that was on TV. Long tail content, cable channels, yeah. good businesses. <laughs> I think this probably had a good amount to do with me getting into the the tech industry too. I mean, I think uh, who would have thought that by watching Kevin and Alex drink beers on their couch talking about tech news that one day we could grow up to do the same <laughs> do thing, the same David. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> the more things change. <laughs> Yeah. Well, he's got this great podcast episode uh, where um, Kevin's very into sort of like quantified self uh, type things. I know we don't use that phrase anymore because the wave is sort of passe and, it, and you know, now it's digital health or whatever. But he's got this um, sleep PhD researcher on from UC Berkeley who's starting a company. Um, it's f- absolutely fascinating learning facts about sleep. I think sleep is going to be the thing 20, 30, 50 years from now. I don't know when, but lack of sleep will be treated like smoking some of the facts that he's throwing out on there about the results of even depriving yourself of a few hours of sleep from one night in your body's ability to repair cells before they can uh, start to become cancerous, for example. There's just a tremendous amount that uh, sleep helps us um, repair. And there's another one specific thing he mentions that was fascinating was when you take uh, sleeping pills, you're not, you're not actually sleeping. Like you're not conscious, but like, he's like, I wouldn't call that sleep. And you're, you're not doing your body. You're not putting your body into the state, um, that it really needs to accomplish a lot of the sort of healing and repair and sort of regulatory things that it does. So well worth the hour or whatever it is to, to listen to it and actually has sparked sort of a new area of interest and, um, uh, set of sort of companies and, and ideas that I'm, I'm starting to look into. Awesome. Well, a huge thank you to our sponsor for this episode, Zoom Info. If your company wants to supercharge its ability to find, acquire, and grow customers while also becoming more efficient, it is a no-brainer to start using ZoomInfo. And now they're making their automated go-to-market playbook available for free for anyone to try. Head on over to acquired.fm slash ZoomInfo to see this go-to-market playbook. And when you get in touch, just tell them that Ben and David at Acquired sent you. Thanks, ZoomInfo. Well, listeners, thank you for joining us. If you like the show and you want to hear more, uh, maybe like a week from now, but you're, you know, Acquired's not out yet and you're jonesing for it, um, we would love you to support the show and become a limited partner. It's at kimberlite.fm slash acquired. You can click the link in the show notes or go there. Thank you so much for, for listening as always. I think that is all the things that I have to say. Yeah, we'll see you next time for our season finale. All right, see ya. Later. 